I feel so just blessed because we have a um, worship director that screens the songs that we sing. He doesn't let anything come through that uh, is poor theology. And um, the songs in and of themselves are us singing the scripture, and it just, it's so nourishing to the soul. It's so important. And um, I think that it's easy um, to take that for granted. And, and then we, we start singing these songs, Jesus paid it all. And um, it just breaks me, you know, how true it is, how amazing it is. But, um, okay, enough of that. Um, good morning, church. <laughs> uh, I'm John Boletto. Um, I go here. And uh, um, I'm going to be um, preaching this morning um, to you in um, Roger's absence as he's uh, vacationing, like you know. So um, for the last, uh, uh, yeah, last week, this week, and next week, you guys are getting um, some guest speakers, um, me being the middle. So um, good morning, church. <laughs> good morning, saints. Now, when I said that, I saw a couple of eyes brow, like, what do you mean, saints? Did you guys know that um, if you're in Christ, that you're a saint? Yes. Amen. Good. To be a saint means to be a holy one. It means to be someone special, set apart for God's glory. It means to be sanctified. You know, Hebrews 10.10, it says that Christians, those in Christ, have been sanctified, or made holy. You know, uh, sanctified and made holy, it's the same word in the original language. And it says that those in Christ, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. So Jesus' work on the cross, um, he has perfected for all time everyone that he came to save. That means that if we're in Christ, are standing before God, it can't be lost, it can't be diminished. It can't be improved on. In this sense, if we're genuinely a Christian, we're already declared holy. Now, isn't that amazing? It's as good as done. So we meet together this morning as holy in the eyes of God, as saints, because of what Jesus has done. Interestingly, though, after we become Christians, once we've been born again, so a process begins. A process where uh, we start to be, and continually are, being shaped and conformed into the image of Jesus. We become more and more like him. You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 informs us that as believers, those that behold God's glory, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. In this sense, we're being made holy. It's something that's currently happening. So not only are we already holy, but we get the amazing experience to cooperate with God and live out the being made holy process. You know, Philippians 2, 12 uh, and 13 instructs us that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is sanctifying. He is making us holy. And we are called to partner with him and cooperate with him in that process. 
but it's that cooperation part that's kind of tough. This is a part that many times is uncomfortable that we fight against. As we're born again, we're new creations in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He guides us and helps us to be more like Jesus. And even though that's happening, it's still a challenge. Even though inside, we want to be more like the one who saved us, who paid it all. But our desire is being fought against and pulled by our sinful flesh. It's in this battle, living out our faith, being sanctified. This can be a really hard thing at times. It can be a difficult thing. And it's a long, arduous process. You know, it's the same process that Darren shared about last week from Philippians 3. So last week we learned ways to, you know, to help us along our Christian life, not just to survive, but to thrive in it. So if you haven't heard it, you're missing out on a super helpful message I think everyone needs to hear. The scripture that we were taught last week compared our lives to a journey on a path. And it was a path with a pretty amazing price. Today, we're going to be looking at a section of Scripture. Similarly to last week, it's going to offer us inside encouragement on how to navigate our lives. This morning, we're going to take a dive into the book of Hebrews. We're going to unpack chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to see here how our lives are like a race. It's going to inform us and instruct us how we can run our race of faith with endurance. When you hear the word race, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Running. running. Okay, right. Some people would say NASCAR, but I think of running too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think of a foot race, and I think of different types of foot races. I think there's sprints, right? These are relatively short races, quick, that involve explosive, just all-out bursts of speed. Then there are these relay races where there's a team of that do it together. Each runner is responsible to run their own portion of the race. When they have uh, um, completed their section, they pass this baton to the next runner and they get to stop. The next runner goes and this happens again and again and again until the baton crosses the finish line. So, but then there's another type of race. This is a type of race that would be really familiar to the original hearers of the letter of the Hebrews. A race type that would eventually become known as a modern-day marathon. So this kind of race, these kind of races, they're considerably longer. And the longer distance. Um, I think for a race to qualify as a marathon, it needs to be, uh, what, 26.2 miles? Now, me personally, I don't travel 26.2 miles without something that has a motor on it. So, like, but I know that we have today a few marathon and ultra-marathon runners in our congregation this morning. And they're going to be the first to tell you. Notice I said they. All right? It doesn't take a genius to look at me and come to the conclusion that I do not run marathons. Actually, the only time I run is when Debbie says that dinner's on the table. So, but I should probably change that. Um, but seriously, people that run marathons... They're going to tell you that it's no walk in the park. No pun intended. There's always a pun intended. They're not easy. Marathons, they traverse a variety of terrain. The courses can have several turns, drastic elevation changes. You go uphill, you go downhill. Yeah. You know, rather than the explosive energy needed in a sprint, 
You know, these sorts of races, they require a, a steadiness in order to go the distance, stamina, endurance. These races require a high degree of mental and physical strength to complete. They push the body beyond all points of exhaustion. Marathon runners are true athletes. And to complete a race like this, it takes diligence. It takes discipline. It takes determination. So our Christian life, it's being related to a race like this. Living out our faith in Christ, as most of you know, it isn't the easiest thing. It too takes diligence, discipline, and determination. Please, everyone, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And as we turn together to Hebrews 12, we're going to see that there are things that we too can do to diligently train for our race of faith. And there are things that we ought to be disciplined in so that we can run with endurance and with the right mindset and focus, we will remain determined to cross that finish line. So let's read the Word of God. All right. It's working. Thanks, Sydney. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen? All right. Even though it's only two verses, there's a lot packed into them. To begin to understand what exactly is being said, I think a bit of context and background is needed. So we're not certain who wrote this letter. Unlike other New Testament letters, the author of Hebrews isn't identified within the text. So this uh, particular letter lacks a, a traditional greeting or a formal introduction, a section that would include the author's name. Many um, other biblical letters have this formal introduction. So for instance, Paul to the church in Rome, Corinth, Paul to the church in Ephesus, Thessalonica. In those letters, the author is identified, um, and it's pretty explicit. The letter does not have that component. And so over the centuries, different Bible scholars have suggested a wide variety of potential authors, something Paul wrote the letter. Maybe Barnabas, some say Apollos. It seems like at some point, everyone and anyone has been attributed to writing it by somebody. So, but we simply do not know for certain and that's okay. We have to be okay with not knowing, the human author. It obviously isn't critically important for us. However, the thing that we can hang our hats on, the thing that we do know for certain, is that because it's in the Bible, every single word, every idea expressed is true. The letter to the Hebrews is God-inspired, and God has and wants to use it to teach and encourage his people. Because the letter doesn't have that typical introduction, it's also unclear who the original recipients would have been. 
You know, some scholars say it was written to, to Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem. Others think it was aimed at Hellenistic uh, Christians. These were going to be uh, Jewish ethnic, uh, ethnically Jewish people, Christians that were living outside of Jerusalem, and their lives would have resembled a lot of the Greek culture that surrounded them. And some say that it was uh, written to um, Gentile church. So basically non-Jewish people, just just non-Jewish people that had converted to Christianity. Some believe that it was intended, like I said, for the Gentile church, the Christians that were non-Jewish. Again, the exact people group that it was originally written to is a mystery, but we do know that it was written to Christians. It was written to Christians that lived during the time of the Roman Empire. And regardless if they were Jewish or Gentile, All Christians at the time that this letter was written was being pretty heavily persecuted. So Christians were being chased out of cities. You know, Emperor Claudius forced them to move from their homes and go find somewhere else to live. You know, a lot of the merchants would refuse to sell or trade with Christians. This made life pretty hard. It's difficult for them to get the things that they need to, to survive. Christians, simply because of their faith, were tortured in horrendous ways and killed all because tyrannical Emperor Nero thought it would be fun. Life for a Christian back then was rough. So it's to these people living in those circumstances that a pastoral heart bleeds throughout this letter, pleading to them to keep going. The writer overwhelmingly presents Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He reveals Jesus as the superior high priest whose ultimate sacrifice gives them direct access to God, the way to be forgiven, and through whom alone is the promise of eternal life. The writer also warns against potential temptation and turning away from the Lord and encourages the follower of Jesus to hold fast to the confession, to run the race with endurance within a culture that is increasingly hostile to their faith. Maybe not quite as extreme, but does this sound somewhat familiar in any way, given our current political and social climate? It's in this context to people who were going through hard times, that under persecution, there was a real reason to call it quits. They wanted to throw in the towel. It's in this context that the author urges them to endure their race of faith. It's in our context that this author is imploring us to endure our race of faith. So from our text this morning, we'll read really practical things, useful instructions that are going to help us run our race things to help us in our lives, to race to the finish and endure in our faith. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, verse 1 begins with the word therefore. And that's a clue to us, the reader, that the author is building off of something else that was previously shared. Therefore means for that reason. You know, so this should provoke us to ask for what reason? We should be asking ourselves, what is that therefore there for? <laughs> to answer that question, we need to back the truck up a bit. 
We need to look back at previous sections of the text to find out what's going on. And so a few verses before our text, chapter 11, the author lays out what is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. It's a list of examples of people, the saints of old, who lived faithful lives, lives that were pleasing to the Lord, people that by, uh, um, who, living in faith, trusted God. They took him at his word, and in turn, they were mightily used by him. Through their faith, they witnessed and experienced God's faithfulness and his character. So faith, it's complete trust and confidence in something or someone. Faith in God is having trust and confidence in God. It's simply trusting God at his word. That's important for us to understand. Faith, simply put, is trusting God at his word. You know, this is different from believing that he exists. A lot of people will tell you that they believe that God exists. But genuine faith, it has substance to it. It's evidenced by trusting that God is who he says he is, that he's done the things that he said he's done, and that he's going to do the things that he said he will do. Biblical faith is having the mindset, God declared it. I'm going to believe it. And I choose to live my life from that reality. It's people who had that kind of faith that are the great cloud of witnesses. Not witnesses in the sense that they're up in the sky looking down on us and watching us. We know that that does not happen. No one is up in heaven looking down on us. Well, angels are, but uh, people are different from angels. That if someone in Christ has died, we know that for them to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. They have much more amazing things to be focusing on than us in our lives. So the great cloud of witnesses, they are witnesses for us. They're not witnesses of us. So the witnesses that are mentioned here are those that surround us with their legacy of faithfulness. Those whose lives are to be an example to us, an evidence to the hearer. The author's pointing back to them saying, hey, remember these guys. Look at them. Remember what God did in and through them. God uses faithful people. Everything that is about to be said next is predicated on the believer looking back and remembering, considering the saints of old. Similarly, as we run our race of faith, we should look back and remember the faithful examples of those who have been commended for completing the race, those who have pleased God by their faithful lives. People like Noah, you know, he built an ark in obedience to God, never seeing any evidence of a coming flood, no clouds in the sky. His action of faith ultimately saved him and his family. His faith led him to experience God's faithfulness and favor. Abraham, he blindly left his home in obedience to God for a promised land and a whole nation of descendants. Sarah, his wife, she had faith that God's promise that she and Abraham would have a child even in old age. She was barren, but she trusted in God and experienced his faithfulness. God made good on his promises. 
Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they were all blessed in a bunch of different ways, and they passed on blessing from one generation to the next because of their faith in the Lord. Moses, because of his faith, he was mightily used by God to do the seemingly impossible, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He endured hardships because he believed that God was who he said he was. He experienced God's provision. He experienced his guidance, miraculous preservation, all of these things along the way. So those are just a few of the examples of the faithful from chapter 11 that the author of Hebrews points to. It says, hey, remember these guys. There's several more. There's Abel, Enoch, Rahab. It's important to remember that the original audience of this letter, they didn't have the complete New Testament. Maybe a gospel too had been written at that time, but most likely that wasn't even widely distributed. We're extremely fortunate to have the whole Bible, the complete revelation of God. So just like the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, it's filled with more examples of faithful people that God used mightily. Peter and the disciples, Stephen, the Apostle Paul, amazing Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, all of them played the significant role in building the early church. They spread the gospel. They too are examples for us of lives lived in faith. They are examples of races run with endurance. We have all of them to look back to and remember. And we should. They should serve as models for us. So we all have things that we want to be good at, right? Or at least better at. Things that we desire and aspire to be successful at. And those things, we often look to people who have uh, proven to be successful um, in whatever area it is, experts. They become examples to us, heroes of sorts. We try to do things that they do, copy the things um, that they've done that have worked for them. We try to be like them. If we play a sport, we often look to that superstar athlete in hopes to inspire us to be better. If we play an instrument, we look to a talented musician. So I wanted to be like Eric Clapton. Yeah. When I was younger, I wanted to be like Eric Clapton. And, and some of you heard me on Sunday and when I play with a worship band, and that obviously didn't materialize. But when I was younger, I watched his interviews. I read his books. I read magazine articles. Then I tried to do what he was doing, you know, in hopes that I might do the same thing. Maybe you guys do the same thing, to try to take that slice out of your golf swing or perform your job better. You look to experts, right? You look at those who have mastered whatever it is that you're trying to do. In this particular day and age, we have online, and there are people, these so-called influencers, they tell people what to do, how you should think, and they offer advice on how to live. So our text this morning points us to people that have been esteemed for their faith, and they are to be our influencers. They are to be the examples for us to remember and model lives after, if we want to run the race well. So more importantly than remembering people that have modeled faithful lives, is remembering God, who he is, what he's done. God himself desires to be remembered. So throughout the Old Testament, many times when something significant happened, the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, they would build these stone altars and they'd just like pile up a bunch of rocks as a 
kind of monument so that anytime they or anyone else passed by that area, they would remember. They would remember the mighty work that occurred and how God intervened at that place. They wanted to remember the significant encounter with God. So these altars were built as reminders of what God did and who he was. Moses and the other Israelite leaders at the time, they built, an, um, they built this altar after being vastly outnumbered. A bunch of farmers miraculously defeated the Amalekite soldiers in battle because God was with them. They built an altar to always remember God's blessing and provision. So similarly, Joshua, he built an altar after crossing the Jordan River into the long-awaited promised land. He wanted everybody, including himself, to always remember God's faithfulness and how God makes true on his promises. In Leviticus, it's a book of the law in the Old Testament, God commands the Israelite nation to observe certain holy days so that they wouldn't forget all he had done for them. Now, so for, for example, um, you may have heard of uh, Passover. You know, here, the Jews were told by God, observe this and remember my faithfulness in leading you out of Egypt, how I shielded and protected you. Pentecost serves to remember God's giving um, the Torah, the law, the first five books of our Bible through which God reveals himself. He makes clear to his people both the things that please him and displease him. Like so many of the uh, surrounding cultures, they didn't, they weren't left wondering, like, what do I need to do to please God? He revealed it to them through his scripture. Feast of Trumpets, the new year, it's a time of reflection, prayer, repentance, where they remember God's holiness. Day of Atonement, here they would remember God's mercy and they would experience God's forgiveness. But there's also a New Testament type of feast that we as the church participate in. It was inaugurated by Jesus with his disciples the night that he was arrested. You know, even though it happened during the Passover celebration, Jesus would redefine what Passover was truly pointing to. That he would soon be the fulfillment of everything which it represented. That's the basis for our communion. The primary reason why the church takes communion is to regularly remember Christ in the gospel. How his body was broken, the ultimate sacrifice, his blood spilled for the forgiveness of sin that you and I might have access to God the Father. Jesus instructs his disciples to do it. Do it. Take communion and remember of me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs the church to follow suit using the same words, to remember Jesus. The point here is that God wants to be remembered by his people. He instructs us, he instructs his people to remember him. He reminds us to remember him. And it's for our own good. It's to our advantage that we remember God. He knows how forgetful we can be, how easy it is for us to forget him. Given the circumstances, our inclination is too often to focus on the circumstance and not to remember the Lord. 
Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders. Psalm 143, 5 says, I will remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. So, and then years later, even in a harlot state of waywardness, God gave the nation of Israel a gift. He gave them prophets to remind them of himself, to call them to repentance and obedience. Isaiah 46 says, speaking on behalf of God to people that have abandoned him, he said, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. In order for us to remember something, we kind of need to know it first, right? We can't really remember something if we never knew it. At that point, I guess it would be, uh, um, what, learning? Yeah, at that point, yeah. Learning about the Lord's important, for sure. We should learn about the things of God, but then we should remember it. What good if it is that we learn something to only forget it? Unfortunately, this happens to me more than I'd like to admit. You know, this is uh, actually why regular and continual Bible reading is important. Why memorizing Bible verses is crucial, knowing the scriptures, what happened, who did what, and what does this event reveal about God, those things are important. And doing it again and again and again. Being Bible literate, it doesn't just happen. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes priority to read, to learn, to know, and to remember. So this is what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. The author is pointing back and saying, look at these people that have successfully run the race. Look how God used them because of their faith. Look how amazing God is by using them. These are flawed, broken people, just like you and me. And God used them. In their weakness, in their frailty, they held on to and remembered the promises of God. They trusted him at his word, and they lived their lives accordingly. Learning and then remembering the example set before us, remembering who God is and what he's done. That's our training in running the race of faith. See, a marathon runner doesn't start off running 26.2 miles. They start off light with like only two or three. They gradually add miles to their frequent runs, diligently training day after day, month after month. They're preparing for that race. They may even go out and try to run the actual course. So then on race day, they're conditioned, they're ready to run, in hopes that they might endure to the end. Looking back at the examples of the faithful people, that God, who used them, diligently remembering truth, that's how we, too, are going to endure in our race. When we get a call from the doctor's office, they're telling us, it's not looking good. 
when we experience the loss of a loved one and it feels like a piece of us has been ripped out of our body, when our marriages are in shambles, when our brains start to mess with us and make us feel low, or we start to think, about our, um, we start to think things about ourselves that are not true, when the devil tries to convince us that we are worthless, that God doesn't love us, that we are too messed up to be helped, that our circumstances can't be changed, when the culture presses in on us and tells us that we have to adopt and accept things that are clearly against what God says is okay, and if we don't comply, we're going to lose our jobs, risk steep fines, or even be imprisoned, it's in those times that we look back and remember the saints of old that have gone before us for encouragement. It is then that we remember who God is, that we trust him at his word Diligence and training will inform us of the truth and it will help us to trust in God's promises even when circumstances seem uncertain and bleak. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Awkward silence, glazed over eyes, that soothing sound of the slight snore from the back row. Uh, Yep, you're with me. All right. So the Bible reveals to us what God's like, his characteristics, his attributes. He's infinite. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's good, perfectly and always. He's the definition of what good is. He's omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. Past, present, and future. He's omnipresent. That means that he exists everywhere at all times. He's merciful. He's gracious. The list goes on and on and on of who he is. So much as there are a ton of books, volumes and volumes have been written by many different authors expanding on the attributes of God. A.W. Tozer, Arthur Pink, there's just a ton. And when we study God and his attributes in the scriptures, we can see that there are some characteristics or certain attributes that are reserved for God and God alone. These things, like being all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, like we can't do that. We can't be those things. But there are attributes that as as image bearers, as being created in his likeness, that we do get to share in. There are attributes of God that we too can possess. Not perfectly as he does. But people can be loving. We can be kind. We can be merciful. It says that God is holy. Holiness is one of those attributes that he's made communicable to us, that he shares with us. Not just sharing in the ability, but he actually requires it of us. We know this as we read 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So like I mentioned in today's introduction, you know, we, those in Christ, were declared holy already. We are saints, but at the same time, we're in this process of being made holy. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. It's a process that begins the second we begin our race of faith. We immediately begin to grow. Some grow slower and some grow faster than others. But we begin to grow in knowledge and the things that please and displease God. 
And so, so begins this process, right? Where our thoughts, our words, and our deeds begin to align more and more with the things that please them. Our lives begin to look different. The things that we think, say, and do begin to reflect God in his character. When we are saved, we start to do the things that we know will promote spiritual growth. And we stop doing the things that work against it. This is the sanctification process. This is the part of running the race. And this is the part concerns us being concerned about personal holiness and obedience. So our scripture this morning is telling us that there are often things in our lives that are in direct opposition to running our race of faith. That there are these things that can weigh us down. Another translation might say hinder. These are the things that can interfere, they interrupt, things that prevent or get in the way of us running the race. When a runner is racing, it makes no sense that they'd be carrying things with them that weigh them down, that hinder them. You don't see a marathon runner on race day carrying barbells. When we think of it in those terms, it's, it's kind of obvious, right? Of course we don't. They'd be slow. That would tire them out. That would anchor them. They'd quit. They'd collapse from exhaustion. Every weight and sin. Sometimes, in language, we can use two similar words um, together to, um, that have the same meaning to emphasize a single idea. Uh, for instance, trials and tribulations, right? Um, like the trials and tribulations of starting a new business. This emphatically captures the idea of all things that are difficult. It's possible in our text that the author here uses every weight and sin in this way. That weight and sins are one and the same thing. So it would mean lay aside the sin, the thing that weighs you down. The other option, the one that I'm inclined to lean towards, is that these are taken as two separate and distinct things, but together as a unit, they express a single idea. Bad things, things that we should not hold on to, things that we are called to lay aside. But it's referring to different types of bad things. So it's reasonable to look at the weights, or some translations will use the word hindrance, as the things that may not necessarily be sinful. They are not necessarily morally wrong but there are still things that can slow down a runner. These sorts of things could be like neglecting the things that we know are good and beneficial for our spiritual growth. It's not a sin not to read our Bibles. Everyone's like, what? No, it's not a sin. It's not morally wrong not to read our Bibles. It's not immoral. But not doing so, it impedes. It slows down the transformation of our minds. Right thinking leads to right living, and we're impeding that. So it's not necessarily a sin to choose to not serve in a ministry at the church in some sort of way, but by doing that, we rob ourselves of the sanctification that comes with being part of a functioning part of the community that we were designed to be. When disengaged, we essentially are robbing the body from the spiritual gift that God gave us to build the body up. So another example of a way that I think are like distractions, things competing for our affections and attentions of God, these sorts of things, they can be potential hindrances. What about technology? Everybody's got a screen, right? We've got these little computers in our pockets. 
Or what about our hobbies? They're not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, right? They're not morally corrupting things. You know, watching TV, having your kids involved in stuff like sports or dance, you know, playing golf or even reading novels. These are morally neutral things. Potentially seemingly good things. But when these things are excessive, they distract us from being present with people and with God. They can consume a lot of our time, take away from the things that help us in our sanctification. They replace prayer, Bible study, being at church. These are weights. And we should evaluate ourselves and identify whether or not these sorts of things exist in our lives. And when we find them, we lay them aside. Sins, on the other hand, oh boy. Now, these are blatant moral infractions. Direct assaults to God and his glory. And I think it's really unfortunate, but the reality is many Christians have not really considered the gravity of sin. For one reason or another, they've minimized it in their minds, and they don't realize just how big of a cancer it is to not just themselves as individuals, but to the church as a whole. Yeah. Your personal sin, it affects the church. We are collectively a church body. And when one part is tainted and is wallowing in immorality, it affects the whole body. It affects us all. When the liver has cancer, the whole body is affected. So many have reduced the severity of sin in their minds, and they don't take it seriously in their lives. Um, so many claiming to be in Christ do not take t- sin seriously. And uh, um, it's sad. Actually, it's scary. It's harmful. It's potentially detrimental. So our pursuit of holiness, our striving to be holy, is really important to God. It's important to the God who paid so much to save us. It's the very thing that he came to save us and free us from. Through the work of Christ, we have been declared holy. Now the author of Hebrews is telling us to act like it. This is exactly what the mid-20th century pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, meant when he said, He said, holiness is not something that we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It's something we are to do because of what we already are. Now, this is one of my favorite quotes because it encourages me to want to live a holy life, to live out who I already am in the eyes of the Lord. I included it here this morning, you know, in hopes that it might inspire you too. So we don't pursue holiness to be loved by God. We pursue holiness because we are already loved by God. Christian, his love doesn't oscillate in and out of our lives based upon anything that we do. 
We do not pursue holiness to be saved by God. We pursue holiness because we are already saved by God. I think that this is what confuses so many people into believing that they're okay when in fact they're really not. A genuine saving faith cannot be and is not separated from seeking holiness, from being sanctified. I love how one commentator puts it. And he says that moving away from sin is discipline and it was a result of being born again. And then he said, because of that, there can be no disjuncture between faith and obedience. He means that faith and obedience are so closely linked that they're virtually inseparable. You know, this is why the author of Hebrews, in the wake of preaching faith, implores the runner in the race of faith to endure, to run to the finish, and immediately is dealing with the sin, sin issue. You know, so notice that this is more than a mere suggestion. It's a command. It's a direct order from God to the Christian. Separate yourself from the sin in your life because of who you are and who you belong to. Sin is serious so much as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He calls out for radical amputation of sin in the lives of his followers, saying it's better to be maimed in our quest for holiness than to burn. Holiness, it's God's will for our life. So what do we do about it? Well, it starts with looking inward and identifying sin in our lives. We should take constant inventory, spiritual inventory, proactively seek to identify those areas in our lives where the Lord wants to change us. You know, it doesn't matter how long that you've been in this race. This is a continual activity, and it will be as long as we're on this side of eternity. I know that there have been periods in my life when I've gotten lazy with this, where I too have not taken sin seriously, and that's why there's so many places in the scripture that reminds us that we ought to battle the sin in our lives, that it's toxic to faith, that it's damaging to our relationship with the Lord. Saints, because we're saints, let's be disciplined to identify the sin in our life. Let's take spiritual inventory. Psalmist says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Ask God to show you your sin, he will. Ask the believer in your life that you're close to, friends, spouses, even your kids, hey, help identify areas in me that you don't see that are not pleasing to the Lord. And as the Lord brings to light areas in your life that don't align with redemption, we're to do something about it. We stop it. We lay aside every weight and sin. And that means 
to have a decisive and radical break from the weight of sin in our lives. First, we need to acknowledge that sin exists, that we need to be honest when we look inward, and we need to search for the sin knowing that it's there. So there's obviously sins that we see in Galatians 5, drug use of any kind, marijuana to heroin, drunkenness, immorality, sexual impurity. Those are the low-hanging fruits. So if you're involved in those things, even sometimes, stop it. It's sin. It hurts you. It's immoral. It damages your relationship with the Lord. If you're a believer, if you believe it or not, it hurts the church. You know, there are several things that are less obvious that we can fall prey to. Hypocrisy, acting one way at church and being completely different in our home or at work, not being loving to one another. The sin can manifest itself in a variety of ways. Speaking harshly to our spouse and kids, um, to each other when we get frustrated, treating our kids meanly when they're not listening. How we talk to people can be a real snare. How about the things that we say about other people? Gossip, going around spreading rumors about fellow brothers and sisters, talking about them, causing dissension. This is divisive. That's sin. There is no place for these sorts of things in the life of someone who's been redeemed. Being discontent and where the Lord has you, being bitter with them or being bitter with others, unforgiveness, even if it's harbored and isolated in the cell of your heart, it affects your relationship with God and others. How about pride? These are all sins that the Lord wants us to have no part in. The life lived in obedience by faith has been determined and is set before us by God himself. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Ooh, I love it. Come on now. Yeah. We see pockets of darkness in our souls. We see areas of our lives that clearly are things that the Lord wants to change in us, things that we struggle with. Well, the scriptures tells us to suppress them, to act like they don't exist, to, have, you know, to hide them at all costs from our Christian brothers and sisters because we fear of being judged. Nope. I'm just saying he's with me. Thanks, Canon. You're with me. What does scripture say? First John. 1.9, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and as it is working. Proverbs 28, it says whoever conceals the transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We confess to the Lord and to one another that our relationship with him might be restored and that we can support each other and encourage and disciple one another, that we can share in the battle through prayer and accountability. So, and then we repent. We forsake that transgression. We turn away from it. Whatever sin we're involved in, our text has laid aside. Again, this is a purposeful and genuine commitment to not continue in sin. It's to stop it. If you do sin, but don't. But if you do, but don't. But if say you did sin, we wash, rinse, and repeat. We keep confessing and repenting. The race of faith and endurance requires the discipline of repentance, and it is a lifelong attitude of action. Now, if I left it here, I think that we would all be in a heap of trouble, but it's a good thing for us that uh, I, it doesn't stop here. Are you all ready for some really good news? I know you guys want to get out of here. I'll try to be fast. 
This is important. As we continue reading, we see the author now shifts our attention, redirects our eyes from the patriarchs, and it points it to Jesus. The term looking to Jesus, it's an interesting one. It's a special type of word. It's a, it's a present participle, and the fullness of its meaning often is lost in translation. The use of this type of word, it, insinuate, uh, it's, uh, it insinuates that this is to be a continuous action. This phrase could appropriately be translated and understood as while looking constantly and continuously at Jesus without distraction as we run the race of faith, we're to without ceasing keep our eyes fixed on him. <clears throat> as we have these amazing OT heroes, right? These Old Testament heroes, those who have modeled for us in different ways what it looks like to endure the race of faith as we analyze ourselves, making tremendous efforts to lay aside the things that inhibit spiritual growth or our moral imperfections. We're to do all of these things while looking at Jesus and completely focusing on him. Why? Why, you ask? Well, the text gives us the answer because not only is he the founder, the source of our faith, but he's the perfecter, the completer of it as well. Unlike anyone else, Jesus is unflawed example of what it looks like to perfectly run that race of faith. His whole earthly life is the very embodiment of trusting God. From beginning to end, Jesus had total dependence on the Father to complete his perfect will. His faith expresses itself, necessarily so, in complete and perfect obedience a perfect and sinless life. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in the form, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his perfect obedience, defeating all temptations of sin, enduring all inflictions, as our test puts it, despising shame. So there was nothing more shameful or disgraceful that happened, um, that could happen to anybody, than to be uh, crucified publicly. You know, a fate designed for the lowest of the low. One commentator uh, phrases it, it's, he's referring to the crucifixion, was reserved for the basest of criminals and the lowest of social incasts. There was no lower depth of humiliation. Death by crucifixion was punishment so degrading that no Roman citizen might be subjected to it. It's important to recognize that the shame of the cross where Christ bore the sins of the world is something infinitely more intense than the pain of the cross. Other people throughout history have suffered the pain of crucifixion, but Christ alone endured the shame of humanity as human depravity and all of its foulness and degradation was poured on him. That is a supreme example for believers to endure to the end. The perfect example of what it means to race to the finish, to never waver from complete trust and obedience to God. So it's through this that Jesus endured and that he was made complete through suffering. It's through this that he became the founder of faith, the source of eternal salvation. Christ is the perfecter and completer of our faith. And as much as he was the one to author it, he's also the one to see it to the finish. As faith is a gift from God, he initiates the faith of the believer, he grants faith to the believer, he maintains faith to the believer. So our race of endurance is continually trusting God and obeying whatever circumstance or hardship comes our way. As believers, this race of faith, it's been set before us, and even as we are running, we are not to abandon it, to figure it out, to try to do it for ourselves, but Christ is sustaining us along the way, and we're going to see that he will see it until the end, because Philippians 1.6 promises that he began something in us, this good work, and he's going to see it through to completion. Now, this is amazing to me. Whether we talk about faith as a possibility or as an experience of fulfillment, this all depends on Jesus. Jesus 
did it all. He does it all. And it's because of him that we have faith. And he has laid the race course before us. He has called us to start the race. And he is with us, seeing us through. And he is the great reward at the end. So he finished the work on the cross. That's the only reason we're in right standing with God. His work on the cross justified us, has freed us from the penalty of sin. He's sanctifying us now, freeing us from the power of sin. And by conquering death through the resurrection, we will one day share in his glory where we will be free from the presence of sin. Athletes completing it, are competing in a race, particularly in the home stretch, they're trying to keep their eyes on the goal. It's a finish line. That's what they're running for. Their focus and their determination is all on that finish line. Our verse concludes with now in victory, and as he ran his perfect and complete race, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God that this exalted Jesus is the one that we're gazing upon. He is at the right, home, um, right hand of God on a throne. This language very much describes his act of sitting or being seated in a place of honor as is promised to him in Psalm 110 to be at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus' prize that came to him at the end of his race. The fact that he's now there and exalted, that's the guarantee and security for us and all current racers who have placed their hope in him. So as Christians, we are encouraged to look with determination beyond the present difficulties of God's promise, uh, beyond the uh, present, or excuse me, we're to look with determination you know, beyond our present difficulties, to God's promised rewards. We know <clears throat> that our promise is eternity with him. So closing, I guess I'd like to say, hang in there, saints. Something happened here. There we go. Yeah, there they are. Run the race of faith with endurance. It's not easy. But as we run to the finish, for us to complete the race is that we live our lives trusting God at his word, that he is who he says he is, that he's done the things that he said he's done, and that he will do the things that he has promised. A trust that is demonstrated through striving for, for holiness, through obedience, to finish, to endure in faith, is to not quit, to not give up. It's to be diligent, disciplined, and determined until the very end. So the LA Marathon, it's been held since 1986. It's 26.2 miles and has a maximum finish time of six hours and 30 minutes. That means if you want to um, be recognized as a finisher of completing it, you need to maintain a pace of just about 15-minute miles. In 2011, all-time record was set two hours, six minutes, and 32 seconds. The person set the record was running sub-five-minute miles the entire time. The slowest time recorded, 173 hours and 45 minutes. Although it wasn't an official time, it took Bob Whelan 7.2 days to complete the race. I'm pretty sure he even, uh, even the most out-of-shape people in this congregation can beat that. I don't think so. <laughs> I think you could. Why in the world did it take him so long? Well, what's so impressive about this incredibly slow time is that Bob, he doesn't have legs. Despite the circumstances and limitation, he was diligent, he was disciplined, and determined to see it through to the end, even if that meant running the race on his hands. As the worship team makes their way back up to the stage, let's pray. Father, God, help us all. Help us to diligently remember the examples of the faithful people who ran the race of faith before us. 
to remember you and all that you've done, to help us be disciplined, to pursue holiness, and to trust you and obey you by doing the things that please you. Help us rid those things in our lives that hurt us, the sin, the things that hinder us and weigh us down. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect example. Help keep our eyes on you to be determined to look to you always and sustain us, that we might, too, share in all that you have accomplished, the victory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.